How do we understand mental health in America? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss sanity, psychopathology, our society, and possibilities for hope. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Jerry Piven. Jerry Piven, Ph.D., teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Three of his most notable books are Slaughtering Death on the Psychoanalysis of Terror, Religion, and Violence, The Psychology of Death in Fantasy and History, and Death and Delusion, a Freudian Analysis of Mortal Terror. In the past decade, he has published over 50 papers, and he is currently working on a book to be titled Pious Massacre, Literary Violence from Dostoevsky to Mishima, and an edited collection called Death, Religion, and Evil. He's also a shameless fan of Star Trek. Yes, he is. Here's the interview with Dr. Piven. Jerry, welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to see you again. Yes, you too. Thanks. Hi, so, Jerry. Hey, Ken. So let me start. When we chose this topic, mental health, with you over a month ago, since then, there have been two well-publicized mass shootings. And there's a conversation, once again, in our society and in Washington, as to who should be allowed to own a gun. There are lawmakers who want to not allow insane people to have guns. And whenever this comes up, my first question is, well, what is sanity? How do you define it, or how do you think of sanity? Well, that's an incredibly complicated thing to answer, Steve, because People have some sort of fantasy about what they think sanity and insanity are, and they have some vague notion of craziness and irrationality and various kinds of compulsions and syndromes like schizophrenia or paranoia. But these things are really poorly defined, and sometimes even by professionals. So um, as I sometimes joke, we can throw around terms like sanity and insanity and spirituality and religion and heavy metal. And we think we know what they are, but oftentimes they're bandied about as if there's some sort of substance there. And there's often this sort of misplaced fantasy of concreteness to echo Whitehead. And so in many cases, we really need to sit down and parse out what these terms mean just because we're so vague and because so many of the definitions really don't work. So where do you want me to start here? Because I have so much I could potentially say about this. This is something I I think about a lot because it is a pinch point, really, in a society. Yes, so it's two questions. What is sanity? Is it just, I mean, it sometimes seems to me like it's adhering to a societally set out preset of norms that somebody before you were here decided and said, this is what you have to do or you're not going to be sane. And then the second question is, who gets to decide who is sane? Both of those questions are going to be crucial going forward. They are crucial, Ken, but the thing is this. I mean, in order for lawmakers to decide what sanity and pathology are, they can't just rely on cliches. 
or what Hannah Arendt would call thought-terminating cliches. And that's the problem, is that when we define these things simply in terms of some medical model of sanity as reason or as symptomatology or as normality, we run into a host of epistemological problems. And these things have been detailed by psychologists for the better part of a century. And there's still a tremendous conflict over these ideas. We imagine that sanity has to do with some capacity to see reality and to judge things with some sort of openness and a lack of inhibition or distortion and so forth. But again, these simplistic notions are, are really inadequate. And this is why we have to get into really complicated understanding of what we even mean by mental health or mental illness, even though the term has been excoriated for 50 years after Tommy Saws came along, right? There are serious problems in defining these terms. How do we define pathology? Well, okay, some people are going to say it is, as you implied, Ken, it's a matter of deviance or abnormality. But let's imagine a person who's in an incredibly violent coercive society. Let's imagine a person who grows up with a family or peer group who is constantly belittling this person and indoctrinating this person into various kinds of beliefs and demanding adherence to these dogmas, or maybe people around one who damage one's self-esteem, ridicule, mock, bully, subjugate somebody emotionally. Imagine you're in a society where misogyny is entirely acceptable and ordinary, and that if you are not misogynistic and you don't conform to those values, you're considered some sort of a deviant. Or imagine you're in a society where people are rigorously racist or homophobic, and that if you don't subscribe to those values, you're considered the sissy and the deviant and the sick person, and maybe you're thrown off a wall or a wall is dropped on you, which actually happens in certain cultures because you're some sort of sick deviant. Well, in those kinds of societies, escaping the coercion, escaping the indoctrination, somehow being fortunate enough not to be emotionally bludgeoned, escaping the damage to self-esteem and the emotional injury, that would be considered pathological. But in fact, the person who has escaped this is not nearly as wounded, is not nearly as compelled, is not so psychologically subjugated. And so we're going to find that the person in a misogynistic, racist, bigoted, homophobic society who is emotionally damaged and, again, deeply wounded inside can be considered utterly normal. But descriptively, in terms of the way the psyche works, this person may be, again, normatively ordinary, but um, is still incredibly injured and impaired. And the the examples you're giving, some of those are real real examples like the first yeah. one sounded like saudi arabia you know yes and, and, the, and the second one sounded like the jim crow south and there are societies where they'll just toss you into a mental institution russia was famous for that they don't like what you have to say you must be crazy go into a mental institution and they're still in some places doing that a forced institutionalization my back really went up when he said what if the society is racist yep. and they're forcing you to basically subscribe to beliefs and that, that you find abhorrent? Yeah. And now, of course, we have the reverse of that, but with the same level of intensity with the woke folk. Well, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, unfortunately. But it sounded, when he was describing it, it sounded very much like that. 
Well, I was alluding to those things yeah. um, because there can be so many different societies where various ideas and attitudes are indoctrinated and bludgeoned into children from an incredibly early age. It can be bludgeoned into them with parents demanding that children act a certain way and feel a certain way, afflicting them with fears of persecution and feelings that they're terrible, worthless beings who don't deserve any kind of love, who bludgeon them into feeling misery and vengefulness and hostility and an inability to love. And all these things may be so indoctrinated, but so normative that people in a society can share certain traits like this. Whereas hypothetically, a person who doesn't feel such hostility or homophobia, or maybe a person is even open to different kinds of thought or sexuality, but can still be considered a heretic or a some sort of opprobrious, wicked, demented, perverse kind of person. But that's all descriptive, right? Their own anxiety and hostility are going to label the deviant as if that person were hypothetically the sick one. And that's just not the case in terms of the dynamic functioning of the psyche. Somebody who might be free from inhibition and might be free from the psychological conflicts and despair that induce vengefulness and hatred. Somebody might be considered really demented and ideologically loathsome and perverse for not being misogynistic in a society where people consider women inferior who must be subjugated, okay. right? But let's understand, regardless of what people consciously think about this, misogyny itself is an agglomeration of conflicts and emotional injuries and fear of, of death and decay. And misogyny is a psychopathology, regardless of whether it's in a diagnostic statistical manual or is accepted that way. We're talking about the dynamics that make a person feel and think a certain way, not whether you or I happen to find that attitude disgusting or, or reprehensible. Well, how about happiness versus unhappiness? Does that play a role in deciding whether someone is sane or not? Not necessarily, because many of our pathologies are attempts to deny and get away from the sources of our misery, the conflicts, the emotional wounds, the things that make us miserable. Our symptoms are compensations. They're ways of denying, becoming unaware, compensating for all of that kind of feeling of misery, abjection, betrayal, inferiority, and so forth. So this was even said decades and decades ago by many psychologists, and yet there are still people who think of this in terms of happiness or unhappiness. Let me give you an example because it pertains to one of the other questions you wanted to ask, Steve. Recently, there was a guy, Reisner, who wrote an article about why we should stop diagnosing Trump. And he made a really interesting argument. And part of it was really astute, because he's saying, look, we should get away from amateur diagnoses. Diagnosis is incredibly complicated. We don't necessarily have the training or the understanding or the evidence to make a diagnosis we should get away from what Freud called wild analysis, right? It's epistemically irresponsible. It's doxastically irresponsible, morally irresponsible to do this. But his primary argument was based on something else. His primary argument was that in order for something to be pathological, the symptoms have to be painful to the individual. But here's the problem and why this is so egregiously wrong, <laughs> okay? Right. As psychologists were saying, even in the 1940s or before, a person's emotional, psychological defenses are ways of getting away from pain and anxiety and misery. A person tries to blot out perceptions that are un unpleasant. They try to 
blot out the perception of the parent as actually sadistic or unloving, for instance. They try to recreate images of others because they need others to be loving so desperately. The defenses blot out events that are excruciating. They blot out perceptions of the self. So in the case of a grandiose narcissist, for example, the narcissistic fantasies or delusions are compensations for feelings of emotional woundedness and inferiority. That person feels like a loser, feels like he's nothing, feels utterly disrespected and is utterly humiliated. And the narcissistic grandiosity is a delusional compensation for all of that. So by definition, the person's joy comes from a psychopathological deluding of the self. His happiness has nothing to do with his sanity. It's, in fact, his happiness can only be achieved through those activities that derange and obfuscate the sources of his real pain. And he might not feel pain now because he's compensated for it, but everybody else around him, everyone in the whole civilized world is feeling pain because he's exercising his malignant narcissism on the rest of us. Indeed. So part of the syndrome is that not only is this person deluding oneself in order to attain that happiness, but as you suggested, Steve, is compelled to inflict one's own humiliation and misery onto others in order to evacuate them, in order to exercise them, right? I mean, Walter Davis uses the term exorcism in the religious sense to talk about the way in which people evacuate and project and inflict their own misery and inferiority and hostility and the fact that they might not have been loved or might have been emotionally bludgeoned, inflicts it on other people in order to exercise it and gain some sense of mastery. Now one can inflict misery and hostility on other people and make them humiliated and disrespected and make them feel inferior and detested. Or they can buy a gun or, or they kill, can buy kill a, gun. a bunch of people. I mean, Columbine was a question of a young man, a teenager, or, or I forget how old he was, but he had a grudge against the wrestling team because they had bullied him. So those were his first victims. Right. And of course, so, he shot a bunch of other people. Yeah. So the vengeful act is pleasurable. It's an attempt to restore mastery and control and eradicate feelings of self-loathing and so forth. So the notion that psychopathology is going to be based in the subjective sense of one's own happiness or comfort or love of oneself is purely nonsensical because whether one is becoming an armed assailant or a narcissistically grandiose, pussy-grabbing, misogynistic uh, person <laughs> with the greatest uh, words, and biggest hands, uh, and stable <laughs> kind of nonsense. Uh, painted right? orange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Chetonic dictator. By definition, those kinds of defenses and fantasies and compulsions are designed to eradicate the, the misery and self-loathing and unhappiness and inflict them on others. And so, yeah, just because a person feels happy or unhappy doesn't reflect what's going on inside them or why they feel that way. So yes, uh, that kind of argument from Reisner about Trump or anyone else not being pathological if they don't feel misery is obscenely ludicrous. Can I ask a question about narcissism before we leave it? Is narcissism like a prerequisite to someone thinking that they're capable of pushing outside the societal norms? I mean, isn't everyone, isn't Oprah, isn't Ellen DeGeneres, certainly Trump, I mean, isn't there an element of narcissism if anyone thinks they can be better and be on TV and be famous? Well, okay, Ken, let's distinguish between kinds of narcissism, right? Psychologists often talk about healthy narcissism, for example. 
having a, a self-esteem in which somebody has an investment in the self that feels self-confidence that's not based in the need to compensate for feelings of misery or inferiority or something. So there are different kinds of narcissism, right? That distinguish between healthy okay. and pathological narcissism. Now, that doesn't mean the division is always so strict or perspicuous, but not all narcissism is alike. So you're going to have some people who seem to have self-confidence and a capacity for love that may seem narcissistic to some people, but may be a kind of healthy self-regard that isn't derived from those kinds of injuries. And some people may become narcissistic in the sense that they're more self-preoccupied. And some people may engage in sort of mild self-aggrandizement, or maybe they need attention or something. But then there are those gradations, right? I mean, there's the malignant narcissism, which again, has a compulsive need to inflict control and humiliation and abjection on others. There's a narcissism that's so grotesque that it dovetails with psychopathy because the person by being so narcissistic is incapable of experiencing any concern for others or empathy for others, is incapable of admitting any kind of flaw or mistake because that would wound the self again. So yeah, there's a whole spectrum of what narcissism could entail from anything that is unconflicted and non-pathological to the most grotesquely violent kind of pathology, which seeks really horrific vengeance on others and may contain delusions of godhood and such. Well, then we have the question, should we or should we not diagnose Donald Trump? I'm not saying in a formal medical sense, but over 60,000 mental health professionals signed a petition saying that in their professional judgment, Donald Trump manifests a serious mental illness that renders him psychologically incapable of competently discharging the duties of President of the United States. And I heard James Gilligan speak at a forum where he said it took less than five minutes to figure out there's something wrong with this guy. We're all sitting around saying, this is a Mussolini. This is not your typical American president. Now, remember back in the 60s, Senator Barry Goldwater successfully sued Fact Magazine for defamation after it ran a special issue examining Goldwater's mental stability. The American Psychiatric Association instituted what came to be called the Goldwater Rule, which states that it's unethical for psychiatrists to give a professional opinion about public figures whom they have not examined in person. So that kept mental health professionals from speaking out about Nixon, who appeared to most people to be suffering from paranoia. The Goldwater Rule was enforced until we got to Trump, and everybody said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is beyond the norm. Well, should we or should we not? Should psychologists weigh in on the question of Donald Trump's mental health? Okay, well, again, this, this has various components. One is the epistemological component. When do we have enough knowledge and enough training to know what we're talking about? She was whether it's ethical for anybody, especially psychologists, to perform diagnoses outside of a, a therapeutic or a medical scenario. In terms of being in knowledge, well, okay, you're talking about Gilligan, right? Who's who's brilliant psychologist. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a, a skilled, trained, brilliant psychologist. And by the way, he spent so many years working with prison populations to get the specific kind of training about what certain kinds of behavior and language tend to suggest. So he is working with violent offenders 
who very specifically talk about the kinds of humiliation and pain and disrespect that cause them to be vengeful and engage in these kinds of self-aggrandizing, compensating, vengeful, sadistic behaviors, right? So he's not just some uh, amateur talking about this. He's somebody who has lived with this stuff clinically for decades. Now, of course, we have to be careful about committing the argument by authority as if I'm a psychologist, therefore I know this, right? We always have to question how much we know. We have to question whether our, our beliefs about any subject matter must necessarily apply. And we have to consider whether something really qualifies as evidence. Because hypothetically, a political speech could even be written by somebody else, or somebody could be kidding around. Or we have to ask, what does this really mean? Now, with somebody like Trump, we have certain kinds of repetitive, ceaseless, unavoidable behaviors. We are utterly saturated and inundated by self-aggrandizing, magniloquent kinds of speech. He is constantly repeatedly talking about how great he is, how awesome he is. He is so utterly vindictive, so utterly, repeatedly, ceaselessly vindictive about his opponents, and he uses ad hominem arguments. He insults them personally. He does not engage on a policy level about what is hypothetically wrong about their principles or their solutions. It's all utterly vindictive, sadistic condemnation and belittlement of others. And this kind of material becomes um, extremely opulent. It's a wealth of data over the course of years and years and years where someone is engaging in this kind of compulsively unavoidable self-aggrandizement and vituperation of other people. Not to mention 30,000 lies. Uh, Yeah, not to mention (laughs) 30,000 lies. But one could hypothetically interpret some of those lies in a variety of ways. One could say that, again, he's towing the party line, or he is speaking the propaganda that benefits his party. There are certain ways of interpreting these that don't necessarily indicate psychopathology. I'm talking about, again, the kinds of repetitive strategies that do speak to a kind of pathological narcissism, which not only involves aggrandizing the self, but also belittling and diminishing and humiliating other people. And when we have this kind of opulence of data over the course of years, we start to think maybe this isn't just a political speech and it's not just one of those arbitrary or potentially misinterpreted comments. We have probably more on this stuff that is more consistent and more indicative of certain kinds of psychological states than we may get from years of taking clinical case history. So it's not arbitrary. And to draw upon this wealth of data, now the ethicality of it is, again, a different issue. And many psychologists are appropriately concerned with what it would mean to diagnose somebody because that becomes, in some cases, a stigma. They're using the diagnosis to do just what he's doing, to belittle somebody or to not take his ideas seriously or to not take him seriously or to use that as an excuse to not focus on the actual subject matter or something like this. There are serious ethical issues with diagnosing people. But another side of that is this. If a person is so incredibly mendacious, so incredibly destructive, engages in so many policies and behaviors that are so grotesquely immoral and harmful and destructive, then sometimes it needs to be said. It needs to be called out into the open so that we could recognize what is both immoral and what is problematic about that perspective and style of afflicting others with destructive policies. At that point, it's unethical not to speak up. That is the other side of that, is that many people are saying, 
there is so much destructiveness happening. There's so much suffering. There's so much corruption. And as I said, mendacity, that it is our moral obligation to bring this out into the open. Right. So just before we leave narcissism, and I think, Steve, that's a word we use a lot on our show, narcissism. That word has a lot of meanings other than the one we usually use it for, which is pathological Trumpism. On a continuum. On a continuum. That's the word I was trying to say, continuum. Like healthy pride. And there's different types. There's different types. There's healthy narcissism. That starts at birth and continues through into into old age and careers and all the rest of it. Uh, So what makes anyone or anything pathological? Well, Ken, this is incredibly difficult to define adequately. Problem is that when you first asked me this question, I started jotting down notes. And then 12 pages later, I realized that the definition (laughs) is so long that it couldn't adequately (laughs) be conveyed over a podcast. And um, as Sheldon Solomon often says, it would be a fantastic cure for insomnia. (laughs) But to try to to tackle this in, in some sort of concise way, since brevity is the soul of wit and I'm totally lost in that regard. We have to be careful because, again, there have been so many really inadequate and strange definitions of psychopathology. There are thinkers like Barnaby Barrett and Paul Verhege who have subjected the Diagnostic Statistical Manual and Psychiatry to vicious analysis and vituperation because the entire epistemic framework and their assumptions about what is pathological are seriously defective in terms of what symptoms they choose, how many symptoms they choose in order to define a certain syndrome, what makes them pathological, how we understand them. All of these things are incredibly problematic and difficult and need to be rethought. And so we have to then really be more rigorous about hypothetically what makes anything pathological. And there are different approaches to this. So for instance, when we go back to looking at some of the earliest psychoanalytic definitions of pathology, we find that they changed over time as clinical evidence accrued and people started to learn more about the way in which people would form symptoms, why they would act out, why they would somaticize, why would they would be compelled to do various things. And it is very complicated because, again, we can't judge from the outside based on what is considered normal or abnormal behavior. And we can't judge according to, again, what makes people feel good about themselves or what makes them feel happy. So. Freud initially defined a neurosis as a compromise between a wish and a defense. Now, of course, Freud had different neuroses. He distinguished between actual neuroses and psychoneuroses, and the actual neuroses were based on sort of sexual conflicts that were being manifested in contemporary situations, but the hysterias were based on sexual traumas and the inability to experience one's own desires because they were socially forbidden and people would displace their own conflicts into various kinds of physiological symptoms like paralysis and so forth, but also into mistaken or deceived ideas and so forth. So there's a complexity here. If we go through the history of what the analysts have thought about psychopathology, we are going to get into something very complicated. On the one hand, psychopathology can be construed in terms of, as some analysts would call it, a compromise formation. There is a kind of desire or wish that cannot be satisfied. It is too painful to satisfy it. One is afraid of the reactions in the outer world, and one then displaces that into some sort of disguised behavior. A compromise formation is some sort of a psychological symptom of something that can't be expressed directly. 
And then the problem becomes here. We have conflict that cannot be resolved consciously, which manifests itself in some sort of a symptom. That's psychopathology. But also at the same time, you have the notion that there are certain kinds of perceptions and experiences which are utterly excruciating and painful and injurious to the psyche. So even way back when Freud was talking about hysterias, on through his later writings on religion and culture, you have the notion that pathology is construed in terms of the way that certain kinds of experiences in childhood, certain kinds of humiliations, deprivations, emotional wounds, injuries to self-regard, inculcation of certain kinds of ideas in a painful, terrifying, humiliating way could cause uh, such trauma and pain to the psyche that the person could only tolerate them by distorting one's perception of oneself, distorting one's perception of others, distorting one's perception of the universe, and also altering one's very experience of one's own feelings so that one no longer had those desires, one was no longer conscious of wanting certain things, one wouldn't consciously be able to feel hatred toward people that one needed badly and so forth. So there's a disruption of the internal life and a disruption of perception of the outer world. So yeah, on the one hand, there is pathology as what happens when the individual can't cope with certain kinds of wishes being in conflict with reality or with others. But then there's this other definition that has to do with the kinds of injuries that afflict the psyche in response to childhood traumas and conflicts and situations with parents and peers and so forth that disrupt both the inner life and the relationship with the outside world. By the end of Freud's career, I mean, in 1930, he was talking about how each one of us in some way behaves like a paranoiac and distorts some aspect of reality. That is to say, all of us, not just the unhappy few and the particularly demented, are capable of remolding reality in a delusional fashion, and that furthermore, this was an incredibly normal thing. Right at the end of Freud's career, he was saying, look, we don't even distinguish between normalcy and pathology as if there's some sort of strict bifurcation and schism here. From his perspective, all of us were in some sense pathological to the extent that we were injured and wounded in childhood, and we were coerced into believing certain things and coerced into uh, conforming to parental values. And the superego, the moral conscience was injected into the psyche in a potentially coercive and violent and terrifying way. And most of us on some level were incapable of tolerating reality without some sort of utter distortion or adherence to certain kinds of palliative, fantastical, ludicrous beliefs. So the big thought there, yeah, the big idea is that we are all in some sense pathological. That's a big takeaway, right? And when you think about homosexuality, which was considered a perversion in Freud's time, even as late as Becker, who talked about homosexuality as a perversion. Well, Freud called it inversion, right? He talked about inverts and perverts. He thought they were different things. And so uh, it's a kind of fascinatingly complex thing, too, because uh, in, in either case, what he's talking about is an inability for people to cope with their own wishes on the basis of the way in which parents and society condemns and inculcates various kinds of shame and guilt and inhibition and horror about one's own body and, a, and about erotic connection and so forth. Even those definitions of psychopathology still can be expanded tremendously. So even though Freud contributed something really spectacular by talking about the kinds of emotional injury and humiliation and wounding 
that deranged the emotional life and required us to distort reality significantly. He was also speaking from something of a libidinal sexual model. And you have object relations theorists coming after Freud who talked about the ways in which we can be possessed by inner objects, which means the internalization of other people, and that those internalizations can be incredibly destructive. We're possessed by the sadism of the authoritarian father, or we internalize the notion of the mother's breast as something that's unstable and might be withheld. And those things internally disrupt our ability to have any kind of self-esteem, or they disrupt our ability to be intimate with other people or to love the others and give ourselves over to them. They possess us almost like demonic possession, right? To inflict our own woundedness and vengefulness on others. They possess us to assault others or manipulate others. So the object relation stuff really complicates the notion of the internal life and talks about the derangements of the internal life that give rise to what might be called pathological behaviors. We've been having a great conversation here with psychologist Jerry Piven. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're back talking with psychologist Jerry Piven about mental health and psychopathology. And hopefully we'll take less than two hours to unravel some of this. Ken? We were talking about pathology and how it's on a continuum. And you said all people are to some degree pathological. And trauma in childhood, which my ears always prick up because I felt like I was to a certain extent, misunderstood or misdiagnosed by the world in, into which I was born. And I didn't understand why I always felt so out of it, because the experience that I was having, personally, it didn't seem to match exactly what people were telling me I should be experiencing, okay? And when I took the, the MBTI at midlife and I got some other words to use, I felt like I had been given a sort of a skeleton key to what was going on, what I perceived had been happening to me in childhood. And I had to do some rebuilding. I'd had some psychotherapy by that time. And there's a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of narcissistic wounding that took place because you feel like your parents, when you're young, your source figures are supposed to be there for you and understand you and support what you're experiencing. And at certain things, they just weren't having that experience. So I had to go off by myself and, and figure that out. So I just wanted to connect that with trauma at childhood. And it doesn't have to be burned by cigarettes in your crib, uh, childhood trauma, and having to modify, I think I, you have to modify your view of reality, basically, to fit in with that which you are, is being expected of you by your society, by your family, by your parents. Okay, and so yeah. I always felt a little off, you know? The irony here, Ken, is that you may have felt a little off, but lots of people feel completely on by conforming to not only other people's expectations, but altering themselves emotionally without realizing. So some of the most primitive psychological defense mechanisms, for instance, might be reaction formation. Reaction formation is the process by which a, a child actually starts to desire what the parents desire in order to retain their love. Now, it's not like the child's consciously saying, okay, I'm going to start liking broccoli because my parents want me to. What's at issue here is the child's terror of not being loved or of being abandoned or of being punished. 
And so there's an internal process by which one's own desires and perceptions of oneself are held away from awareness and the parents' expectations are fulfilled in order to retain that love, which is needed so desperately. So your experience of alienation might be really, really just so categorically different from so many people who might still be utterly wounded and terrified and conforming to fantasies and wishes that are not their own, but they have no idea that it's happening or that it's plaguing them. The, the whole idea of the superego itself is this kind of aggressively, sadistically internalized self-judgment that says you are going to conform to our expectations and you are going to punish yourself horribly, regardless of whether something is actually right or wrong, and even regardless of what you consciously think about it. We are going to be inside you, plaguing you and punishing you, and you are going to hold on to that because this is why people retain that superego. It's because they're terrified of the parents abandoning them or not loving them. So part of the problem is that what becomes normality and what becomes being a good person in our society means doing some kind of damage to oneself in order to avoid the horror of being hated or, or abandoned or unloved. And then, of course, there are those alienating experiences you talked about, Ken. And when we talk about psychopathology being fairly ubiquitous, it again doesn't mean that everybody is equally wounded or that everybody is so horrifically wounded that we're all walking basket cases, although plenty of us are. It means that we are, as infants, incredibly vulnerable, fragile creatures, desperate for the love and protection and nurturance of our parents, so easily wounded, even when people don't intend to do it to us. This is the thing. It's what anthropologist Weston Labar calls human neoteny. We're born prematurely. If we were born fully formed, we would kill our mothers coming out of the womb because their hips would have to be the size of, of elephants in order for us not to tear them up. So we're born in the state of immaturity, right? Unlike little horses and other creatures that can start running around within hours, it takes us, I don't know, maybe 5, 10, 30 years to develop into some sort of mature being. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that lack of, de of, of development, that immaturity enables us to not only be incredibly plastic in terms of what we can learn and discover, but it also means we're that utterly vulnerable to emotional injury and derangement. And so in all sorts of cases, even under the best of circumstances, there are conditions in childhood, which are really terrifying and troubling. We're that vulnerable so that the accidental kind of encounter and pain and, and so forth can be traumatic. But because we're so compelled to start inflicting this and coercing it on other people, we start reinscribing those traumas on our own children, and it becomes incredibly destructive. Let me give you an example before Steve moves on, because I see him shuffling his papers. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Nawal El-Sadawi passed away recently. And Noel Al-Sadawi Al wrote this really great book called The Hidden Face of Eve, in which she describes clitoridectomy in Egypt. And she talks about what happened when she was a child. She is forced to undergo this female genital mutilation. And she's willing to call it this kind of injury. It's not just a value judgment. And she's sitting there in a pool of her own clitoridectomal blood, miserable, wounded emotionally and physically, while her mother sits nearby laughing and chatting with friends. And this is the cycle El Sadawi is talking about, that when this happens to a person, 
it is so emotionally devastating and traumatic and wounding. But once that happens to you, you can either disintegrate from that kind of pain and trauma and betrayal, or you can strive to cope with it. You can struggle painfully to live with it. And part of struggling painfully to live with it, according to Sadawi, is that we try incredibly hard to convince ourselves that our parents were doing this for our sake and that they're really loving people and they're not sadistic and they're not just cruel to us for no reason. We start to delude ourselves about their qualities. We are so desperate for their love and attention, so desperate not to be hated. And so we start to try to conform to what they want. And we put our own pain aside and we ignore our own feelings of being betrayed and our own anger that they betrayed us so terribly. And what is the consequence of this? Well, Sadawi says that little girls who undergo this often, not always, but often feel so alienated from their own bodies and so alienated from their own mothers that despite any conscious feelings they have, she thinks that a lot of them in adulthood lack the capacity to genuinely love or care or feel empathy toward their own children. So they themselves, having undergone this, become somewhat callous toward their own children and start to reinflict the same cycle of vengefulness and anger and callousness and a lack of empathy. And generation by generation, this cycle of violence and misery continues. People keep reinflicting it on each other, having experienced it without being able to process it. The pathology continues generationally because one then acts out on other people without the capacity to have any kind of empathy or sympathy for them because it would be too utterly horrifying to confront that excruciating misery and betrayal and so on. So Ken and I describe ourselves as cultural yeah. critics. And listening to what you're saying, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Can we expand it a little and talk about how our society impacts us, how our culture gets in, involved in this whole idea of pathology. For example, we're in a culture where we're told you're supposed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're in a culture where in New York, they used to say, well, if you're so good, how come I've never heard of you? You're supposed to be famous. You're supposed to be beautiful. You're supposed to achieve all of these things that our society is saying to us. And at the same time, the implication is, well, if you haven't, there's something wrong with you, or you're just not measuring up, you're inferior, whatever it is. How does our society play a role in this? Okay, so let's not assume that there's one sort of static recycled personality type or cultural personality type or anything like this, but there can still be some shared values and culturally accepted practices. So that in one culture, it might be entirely normative, if not sacred and morally necessary, to harm your children in a certain way or mutilate your children in a certain way. I'm not just talking about one culture. Some people have attributed this to our culture, right? But there are different kinds of shared values and expectations. And so there are also shared fantasies about what people should be and how they should be and what ideas are acceptable and what behaviors are acceptable, such that you can have not just one particular nuclear family, but the extended family and the peer group and culture, teachers, educators, friends, etc., acting upon people to demand certain kinds of, of behaviors and to ridicule certain kinds of behaviors. And you know what? There is oftentimes the ritual reification of fantasies in various kinds of group scenarios, whereby, look, people aren't just all the same, right? Cultures have 
different groups of individuals with different ideologies, but you'll find people sort of seeking out other people who have similar values or similar fantasies about reality. And by seeking each other out, whether that means seeking each other out in gangs or political parties or family get-togethers, because you can see there are any number of family get-togethers where people start splitting off into various groups so they can reify their own fantasies of reality and so forth. And people then fantasize that reality and reify that reality by mutually agreeing upon it. That is to say that they can get together in a group of like-minded people, and by confirming it to each other, they make it seem like it's real. So you can have vastly different groups within uh, societies, subdivisions, right, subcultures, where people resonate with each other because they have also been coerced and wounded in similar ways and respond to the same kinds of cues and the same kinds of fantasies. Maybe some people have had their self-regard injured so devastatingly that they also identify with tyrannical authoritarian leaders, whereas other people may need to reify a fantasy of victimhood that is mutually reinforcing and self-esteem enhancing. Yeah, but think about you're living in a rural part of Texas. Maybe you have homosexual tendencies or you're born a man and you want to become a woman. And then you see someone like you chained to the back of a pickup truck and dragged along till they're dead or chained to a fence and tortured to death. I'm talking about real situations here. And you're not just wounded, you're terrified. You're afraid to be yourself. And you're in a society where you're supposed to be a certain way. Okay, that's probably true of every society. But here you're in a society where there's incredible addiction, depression, stress, suicide is on the rise. You've got a whole list of social problems, or as our friend Sheldon Solomon would say, a petri dish of psychopathologies, to be humorous and not humorous at the same time. So we look at our society as, at large as a player in this, this drama. How does our American society relate to what you're saying? Well, again, what I was talking about, Steve, is that by mutual reinforcement, you could have a society pummeling and bludgeoning and victimizing its own children and coercing them into this kind of subjugated acceptance, whereby they are emotionally extremely wounded and traumatized, but in order to survive, many of them conform to it. So to use that example you brought up of the homosexual person in Texas, the person is faced with a really excruciating kind of choice that one is either going to put oneself in harm's way and be not just physically, but emotionally rejected and ridiculed and mocked and destroyed, emotionally bludgeoned. And and Shengel talks about soul murder, for example, the capacity of a person to be utterly annihilated in one's soul or to conform to it somehow, to somehow become unaware of one's own desires or convince oneself that one isn't this kind of pervert or doesn't have those feelings. And it may be really bizarre to some people to think that people aren't aware of their own feelings, but plenty of us have been conditioned from a state of infancy, as I said earlier, through, again, some of those defenses like reaction formation and denial, disavowal, identification with the aggressor, to not feel what we really feel. And it becomes the source of acceptance and self-esteem to not be that. So on some level, it's not that it causes a dramatic change in character. You don't stop being whatever you are, but you can, on some level, convince yourself that you're not that, or even find a way of identifying with that aggression so as to continue to mock it as not you. 
it's not uncommon for people to express contempt and derision and hostility toward the very things they experience because to express that kind of derision makes them part of the group that they really want love and acceptance from. And it feels empowering to then inflict that same kind of vulnerability and ridicule on other people. Now you are an agent of violence and power uh, and aggression instead of a victim of it. So yeah, we have ways of recycling this kind of violence and distancing ourselves from it, even though we ourselves may be self-destructive in that process. Now, you had mentioned to me earlier, or when we were talking about this, what you called social death. You talked about the way in which a moment ago, you talked about the way people kind of loss of meaning or a sense of purpose, purposelessness and depression. And yeah, this has all sorts of implications. I mean, people can lack meaning and purpose and suffer from what Durkheim called anomie and sink into Malay's depression, what Viktor Frankl called noogenic neurosis, the mass neurosis of modern times, he called it. But social death can be even more necrotic than that. People can experience what uh, Achille Mbembe called necropolitics, what Leonard Harris calls necro-being, or even what Calvin uh, Warren calls existential murder. There is a kind of radical evil that Walter Davis talks about in his book, Death's Dream Kingdom, the despair and dehumanization that lacerate the core of one's being, the deliberate soul murder that people may be subjected to. And ironically, there are swathes of the population that do feel insignificant, hopeless, and lost, and may experience social death. But some of those seek necrotic solutions to their own social death by dehumanizing and subjugating others, engaging in what Warren calls metaphysical holocaust, to annihilate another's being, to restore their own being. Let me interrupt you one sec, though. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying here. But, it's okay. But I'm looking at our society, which is unfortunately, has lost the power of religion to give people purpose, meaning, give them solace, comfort that other societies have traditionally given their their members. So you can argue that, oh, well, we have a well-functioning society. Well, we do from the standpoint of driving our members to achieve, and that's why we dominate the world. And you say, well, that's a good thing. And you say, yeah, that's a good thing at what price to the people who are being driven or who are being left behind in this drive to be the most important country in the world. So we're the most individualistic country on the planet. This has been shown in study after study that America, not unlike Australia and parts of Europe in Canada, are individualistic, but we're the most individualistic, and the rest of the world, South America, Asia, Africa, is much more collectivistic. The cultures exist for the benefit of the members, for the common good, whereas in our society, there are people who dismiss the very idea of a common good, like Margaret Thatcher, who said there's no such thing as society. There are people and families, and that's it. And you're looking at a society that makes people crazy for a non-clinical way of expressing it. But this individualistic culture that does not respect the common good, that does not care about whether a person is psychologically, spiritually, however you want to call it, does not have equanimity, 
is constantly fighting with what the society is telling them about themselves. That's unusual. Not that every society is perfect. No, not that every society gives its members comfort equally. No, but we've got some real problems here. What other society has a mass shooting every two weeks? What other society has 400 million guns? And we don't know how to keep them out of the hands of people who just, you know, wake up one day and decide they want to kill a bunch of people. These are huge problems. I don't mean to interrupt what you're saying about the individual pathology, but could you open this up a little bit in terms of the U.S.? Well, of course, and, and, and that's where I was going, Steve. And I oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So, no, no, I don't mind you interrupting no. me at all. I mean, this is really important stuff. I mean, there's something really kind of demented and pathological about a society where we could be so obsessively worried about illicit voting practices that haven't actually happened such that we're going to open up 246 different voting suppression bills in one week, again, in response to utterly fantasized, fabricated voting violations. But when people are actually murdered in droves year after year, no laws are specifically passed. And then certain politicians, many of them call it political grandstanding or theater when people really want to change things. That in and of itself is kind of cringeworthily demented and terribly sad because actual people are being killed, whereas not very many actual ballots are being fraudulently cast, except by some of the people who are complaining the worst about it. So yeah, we are an incredibly fragmented society and we are suffering from this incredible anomie and social death and the fragmentation is so palpable in so many areas. So what can we do about it, right? Well, again, there are different ways of resolving this kinds of catastrophic existential horror and pain and loss. You said early on in your comment, Steve, that people couldn't believe so much in religion anymore, even though there, there are really large swathes of people in America who are incredibly fundamentalist. And yeah, there are plenty of people who are religious. But the problem is this, even when we talk about the death of God or the absence of religion, that doesn't necessarily replace that emotional need for some kind of sacred narrative or meaning, in, as you talked about, meaning in people's lives or some sense of that there is a purpose or that there is an actual morality and that there's something to live for and that there is something that is true and meaningful and gives us guidance and so forth. And this is why somebody like Charlie Winquist could write a book called Desiring Theology, in the sense that even in the absence of religion, the desire, the craving, the need, the vulnerability doesn't just magically go away. It's not like people actually evolve to a point where they're suddenly scientific and the light goes on and they're suddenly reasonable and don't need any kind of metaphysical consolations anymore. I mean, I'm using Schopenhauer's term. He talked about metaphysical consolation religion is driven by the fear of death. And so Winquist is saying, yeah, look, you're fooling yourself. If you think that all of us who are scientifically minded have just evolved existentially to the point where we no longer need this stuff, we still need this stuff really desperately. But in the absence of any kind of a believable narrative, people are going to then throw themselves into something else really emotionally, really passionately, hold on to something in order to convince themselves that there is some kind of stability or meaning. And so people then cast about and find different things. So you were talking about people in America, they're talking about shootings, talking about support for Trump. Well, okay, let's go back to Beauvoir for a minute and talk about this, right? In the second sex, Beauvoir has this short vignette about what happens to somebody 
who is living in the middle of nowhere, like uh, somebody living in the South who lacks resources, who feels like nothing, who feels insignificant, has very little meaning or purpose. What if this person sees other people who are thriving, sees people on TV, sees those evil foreigners doing really well, is affronted by the, the horror that a black man could become president and may seethe with this kind of anger? How dare they not know their place in life? How dare these people succeed? How dare they be happy? Look at what misery I'm living in. Look what I don't have. And I deserve to be happy when they have all this stuff. Well, from Beauvoir's perspective, this person takes one's own sense of helplessness and misery and rage and jealousy and resentment, and then manufactures an ideology or seeks out an ideology that enables a person to feel better than them, seeks out a a white supremacist fantasy that makes a person no longer feel like an insignificant loser. One finds comrades in arms so that one can then target some sort of enemy, target, manufacture, fantasize, fabricate, isolate, identify, give face to an enemy who can be despised as despicably evil so that the self feels redeemed. That's the power of social media. That's the power of the algorithm that feeds you back what you want to hear. Indeed. Yeah. So, So there's a redemptive sacredness to this. It isn't necessarily a religion, but there's a religious sense to it in the sense that the person is seeking out and being seduced by a kind of fantasy that redeems the self from ignominy and insignificance and inferiority by saying, you are significant, you are patriotic, you are the true deserving chosen people, and those people are the evil ones and they are inferior. And if you act in a patriotic way by massacring them or demonstrating how insignificant and evil they are, you yourself are some sort of chosen sacred patriot. It's a vehicle to fantasize one's own redemption and apotheosis in response to feeling completely abject and meaningless. How do we improve our lives and our society through a better understanding of mental health and science? Well, gee, only in five minutes, Ken? Okay. (laughs) I was going to say about five hours. Yeah, right. A couple of chapters, maybe a whole book. Um, Well, as Hamlet said, the readiness is all. And that means being emotionally prepared to recognize one's own vulnerability, one's own frailty, with humility, recognizing that one is human and one is flawed and one's perceptions aren't always right. And that one may even be sometimes irrational and needy and sometimes even pathological. The most difficult thing is to get people to give up those ego defenses. Humility. Yeah, humility, but it means really letting down the very ego defenses that keep us protected. Now, what's fascinating here is that Sheldon Solomon was talking recently about what some of the terror management studies found that's really significant here. People ask, well, if there's so much evidence that disproves what people think, whether it's about voter fraud or anything Trump says, any of the 30,000 lies you mentioned, why is it that when they are assaulted with mountains and mountains of evidence. They don't acknowledge the truth, but then throw themselves more deeply into the fictions. And Sheldon said, well, look, it's those very fictions that people attach themselves to in order to get away from the fear of death. They really ensconce themselves, imbricate themselves, cocoon themselves in those things. They hold on to them desperately because those things help them get away from the utter terror and vulnerability of death. So when they are then threatened with scientific evidence, 
that their ideas are wrong. They feel even more terror. And that's why they throw themselves even more viciously and dogmatically back into those same illusions, right? Because they're so even more terrified, even more menaced. So this is why, ironically, they throw themselves back into that illusion and why it's so then difficult for us to give up those ego defenses. But there's no formula for this, Steve. That's the problem. As much as we can give platitudes about what we need to do, how we need to relinquish the defenses, we need to be humble, we need to love each other, intimacy, all that kind of stuff, you can't just magically do it by an act of will. And so it requires uh, tremendous effort and discipline. And this is why Walter Davis talks about deracination, uprooting, because to really understand one's own pathologies, to understand one's own irrationality, understand one's own inner woundedness and self-deception, you don't just magically clear it away. There is no pure moment of unconcealment, as Heidegger says. One has to rip it out of one's psyche as though those, right, to deracinate, to uproot, as though the tendrils and roots of that pathology went all the way deeply into one's soul. And to rip it out means pulling out the roots excruciatingly from one's own viscera. It's going to be that difficult and that daunting. And it's going to take away what often feels the most protective and safe and sacred and comforting. So there can't be a formula for that, even though it has to be done. But where is there hope? That's kind of the question I always want to get to at the end. Where is there hope in all this if what you're describing is so intensely difficult to the individual? Well, there can be incremental efforts here. There can be the capacity to sometimes look into each other's eyes and trust each other and demonstrate that one is not going to treat somebody else as an enemy. There, again, there are no rituals and formulas that can do this, but just to give you a very quick example, because we're running out of time, when I was teaching at Case Western, there were four women in the classroom who they were calling themselves Arabs, even though they were, they were from different countries, but they were really angrily talking about how much they were convinced that Jews all hated them, all hated Arabs, all hated uh, Muslims. And they were really, really upset. And they said, look, they all hate us. And I, I looked into their eyes and I said to them, look, look in my eyes. Do you think I hate you? And one of them started to cry. And they realized that I wasn't their enemy. And this was uh, not necessarily predictable because I think a lot of people wouldn't respond this way. But yeah, really, one of them started to cry and they realized that they were holding on to something. And from then on, I was fortunate enough to have their affection. And one of them then signed all of her email messages, your favorite Arab and stuff. And they, they responded <laughs> wow. really openly. Wow. Um, That's great. Yeah. And they, of course, were lovely people and realized that I wasn't their enemy. And it was a fortunate enough example of the possibility of attaining genuine intimacy by not mansplaining, by not condescending, by not taking this hostile approach. You are wrong. You are delusional and accusing and all that sort of stuff. It was a moment of genuine intimacy saying, look, I care. I'm not your enemy. Can you at least for a moment recognize that? And sometimes it works. And uh, Steve, I have to admit that chances are it, it would just as likely or more likely result in some sort of barroom brawl. But I think there is an inkling of possibility that through treating people humanely and openly as equals, letting one's own boundaries down, if you can somehow manage it, there is a glimmer of a possibility that people can see that humanity and respond, can be receptive, maybe. What's well, a wonderful Steve, example. You, Steve, you couldn't ask for a much better answer than that. No, that's that's beautiful, Jerry. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. We've been having a wonderful conversation here with Jerry Piven, psychologist. Jerry, thank you. Uh, and you're going to join us again, right? 
Well, I hope so, because I haven't gotten into anything I wanted to say yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> but but Jerry, we've heard you say that before. So oh. <laughs> that's not, not a surprise. Yeah. yeah, no problem. I guess I'm repeating myself. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but thank but, you so much for having me. Thank you again. All right. You have been listening to an interview with psychologist Jerry Piven discussing mental health, psychopathology, and our American society. Steve, what's your takeaway? I think Jerry can be a little overwhelming at times. <laughs> you think? <laughs> well, it's hard to keep up sometimes, but his ideas are really powerful and, and worth the work. Agreed. Let's go into some of the major ideas we discussed. Okay. Jerry rightly doesn't go out on a limb to say who gets to decide who is or isn't sane, but his examples and implications are that is, is an extremely difficult question to answer. A radical woke society could declare a racist or a misogynist as insane. Do we want to live in a society where department and motor vehicle clerks decide who is sane enough to get a driver's license? Do we want Walmart sales clerks or ATF bureaucrats to decide who is sane enough to own a gun? If expert psychologists can't adequately define pathology, who can be appointed to make the determination when someone believes a gun permit applicant is pathological? And do we ever want another president who suffers from paranoia like Nixon or narcissism like Trump? How do we decide who is sane enough to be commander-in-chief with access to the nuclear football? What recourse do any of us have if someone has us committed to an asylum against our will? These are not questions our society seems ready to answer. No, and they're huge questions. Huge. I, and we're all pretending like, oh, we know the answers, and none of us do. The other thing, a most important idea, is that we are all, to some degree, pathological. It's not either or. We're on a continuum. All of us are capable of remolding reality in a delusional fashion. Jerry said... At the end of Freud's career, he was saying, we don't even distinguish between normalcy and pathology. From Freud's perspective, all of us are in some sense pathological to the extent that we were injured and wounded in childhood, and we were coerced into believing certain things, and we were forced into conforming to parental values. Yeah, as I indicated during the interview, that's an area of extreme importance to me personally. Jerry also insisted that psychopathology is not easily defined. Right. In that case, how can anyone pass a law or create a corporate policy that says anything about background checks or the emotional capacity to have a firearm or drive a car? This is still an open question. Yeah. It's got to be addressed. And it's very complicated. We then moved the conversation to society. And this is, this is classic Jerry. We've known Jerry a long time, and this is, this is Jerry at his best. He said, there's something really kind of demented and pathological about a society where we could be so obsessively worried about illicit voting practices that haven't actually happened, such that we're going to open up 246 different voting suppression bills in one week in response to utterly fantasized, fabricated voting violations. 
But when people are actually murdered in droves year after year, no actual laws are passed. And then certain politicians, whom shall remain nameless, Ted Cruz, for example, call it political grandstanding or theater when people really want to change things. That in and of itself is kind of cringeworthily demented and terribly sad because actual people are being killed, whereas not very many actual ballots are being fraudulently cast except by some of the people who are complaining the worst about it. We are an incredibly fragmented society, and we are suffering from this incredible enemy and social death, and the fragmentation is so palpable in so many areas. Agreed, and sadly. Jerry also said that there are swaths of the population that do feel insignificant, hopeless, and lost, and may experience social death, but some of those seek solutions to their own social death by dehumanizing and subjugating others. Even in the absence of religion, the desire, the craving, the need, the vulnerability just doesn't magically go away. It's not like people actually evolve to a point where we're suddenly scientific and we don't need any kind of metaphysical consolations anymore. Religion is driven primarily by the fear of death. So we're fooling ourselves if we think that all of us who are scientifically minded have just evolved to the point where we no longer need this stuff. We still need something really desperately. But in the absence of any kind of a believable narrative, people are going to then throw themselves into something else really emotionally, really passionately, hold on to something in order to convince themselves that there is some kind of stability or meaning. There's a religious element to it in the sense that the person is seeking out and being seduced by a kind of fantasy that redeems the self from insignificance and inferiority by saying, you are significant, you are patriotic, and if you act in a patriotic way by massacring people or demonstrating how insignificant and evil they are, you yourself are some sort of chosen sacred patriot. It's a vehicle to fantasize one's own redemption in response to feeling completely abject and meaningless. According to Jerry, Hamlet said, the readiness is all. And that means being emotionally prepared to recognize one's own vulnerability, one's own frailty, with humility, recognizing that one is human and one is flawed. And one's perceptions aren't always right. And that one may be irrational and needy and sometimes even pathological. The most difficult thing is to get people to give up those ego defenses. It means really letting down our ego defenses that keep us protected. Jerry says, people ask, well, there's so much evidence that disproves what people think, whether it's about voter fraud or anything. Why is it that when they're assaulted with mountains and mountains of evidence, they don't acknowledge the truth? And they throw themselves more deeply into the fictions. So he quotes Sheldon Solomon, our mutual friend. And Sheldon said, it's those very fictions that we attach ourselves to in order to get away from the fear of death. We cocoon ourselves in those things. We hold on to them desperately because those things help us get away from the dread and vulnerability of death. So... 
when we're threatened with scientific evidence that our ideas are wrong, we throw ourselves back into those same illusions because we're more menaced. So this is ironically why it's so difficult for us to give up those ego defenses. But, and this is important, he says, there's no formula for this. There can be the capacity to sometimes look into each other's eyes and trust each other and demonstrate that one is not going to treat somebody else as an enemy. There are no rituals and formulas that can do this. Well, that's true, Stephen. Jerry actually told a wonderful and personal story about when he was teaching at Case Western. There were four women in his classroom calling themselves Arabs, even though they were from different countries, but they were really angrily talking about how much they were convinced that Jews all hated them, all hated Arabs, all hated Muslims, and they were really, really upset. And Jerry said to them, look into my eyes. Do you think I hate you? And they did it. And then he said one of them started to cry. And they realized that Jerry wasn't their enemy. He said this was not necessarily predictable, that a lot of people would not have responded this way. But when the one woman started to cry, they all realized that they were holding on to something. And from then on, he was fortunate enough to have their affection and their trust. And one of them then signed all of her email messages, your favorite Arab and stuff. They responded really openly. Jerry said that it was an example of the possibility of attaining genuine intimacy by not mansplaining, by not condescending, by not taking a hostile approach. I found it really to be a very moving story. Me too. I just thought it was great. And Jerry said, the chances are it would just as likely or more likely result in some sort of barroom brawl. He said, but I think there is an inkling of possibility that through treating people humanely and openly as equals, by letting one's own boundaries down, there's the glimmer of a possibility that people can see that humanity and respond. Wow, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, with a message worth repeating. Well, there's hope in that. Important ideas, man. Very, very this time. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com. Front slash The Hub Important Ideas. We are, as always, 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well.